Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Whispering Box Mystery by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 12, A Desperate Dilemma Scotty, in a spare moment, had found a sheet of cardboard and a wax crayon that had printed a sign which he placed over the lab door. The sign was on the inner side, of course, so that it wouldn't attract the attention of occasional patients who came to see Dr. Kempner who was actually a doctor of medicine as well as a physicist. The sign read, Home of the Sleepless Wonders. In the past few days, sleep had become a commodity that was, to use government terminology, in short supply. Hartson Brandt, Dr. Kempner, and Terhune, the draftsmen, were bleary-eyed from hours spent over sketches, preliminary drawings, and equations. Mr. Brandt's prize slide rule was in constant use for computations, as Scotty said, it never had a chance to cool off. Rick, Scotty, and Fanning were also pale from lack of sunshine, too hurried meals, and inadequate sleep. But they were in far better shape than the older men. Steve Ames could only be described as haggard. Rick wondered if he slept at all. He would pop in at odd hours of the day or night, have a cup of coffee that was constantly brewing in the lab, announce dejectedly that he had nothing whatever to report, and then vanish again. An equivalent of the whispering box had been built, Rick and Scotty doing most of the wiring under Kempner's direction. They could now produce ultrasonic blasts of any frequency. The sound apparatus was yet to be tested, but they were sure it would work. The thing holding up progress on the counter weapon was the electronic control. The theory is simple enough, Hartson Brandt said, during one of his increasingly rare moments of relaxation. We simply make an automatic device that will analyze the frequency of the whispering box, adjust itself, and emit a counter-frequency that will cancel out the box. Well, it sounds easy, but it's not. Kempner sighed. No, it most definitely is not. There are times when I've come close to admitting defeat. So have I, Hartson Brandt admitted. Rick stared at his father. It was unthinkable that any problem could stump Hartson Brandt, any problem in the field of electronics at any rate. The scientist saw the look. Do I surprise you, son? Why do you think the Spindrift group has been so successful in the past? Not because of the brilliance of any one of us, but because of the combined training of all of us. We have faced every problem and solved it because each of us is strong in certain fields. My particular field happens to be design but my designs have been based on mathematical computations of Weiss and on Zircon's extensive knowledge of material analysis and on John Gordon's ingenious solving of mechanical problems. Don't be over-modest, Hartson, Dr. Kempner said. You have conceived the ideas, and that takes a special kind of genius. Mr. Brandt smiled. Perhaps, 
But an idea doesn't end when it is dreamed up, as Rick would put it. The idea has to be resolved into a working arrangement. On a matter like this, I admit myself lost without my associates. Rick asked hesitantly, Couldn't we get Dr. Gordon down here? He couldn't be of much help to us in this case, Hartson Brandt said. What we need most is Julius Weiss's mathematical mind. I wonder where they are, Scotty murmured. All of them had refused to consider that the missing scientists might not be alive. What would anyone have to gain by murder? If the Whispering Box Gang was after delay, as it seemed likely, the same purpose would be achieved by merely holding the scientists. Rick thought of Weiss and Zircon when anyone mentioned the missing scientists. After all, he hadn't known Dr. Bertona. Neither had Scotty nor his father. He asked, Dr. Kepner, you know Bertona, don't you? Very slightly, Kepner said. I met him several years ago at a scientific convention in San Francisco. We've corresponded on mutual problems since then, but we've never met. Could he have solved this problem? Scotty wanted to know. He could have helped. He doesn't have the specialized knowledge of either Weiss or Zircon, but he would have been an extra mind to grapple with these confounded equations. Hartson Brand finished his coffee and put his cup on the lab bench. Rick noticed that his hand shook a bit with fatigue. Well, Kempner, that last design has possibilities, I think. We might see what results we get by coupling the frequency analyzer to the variable resistance. Rick and Scotty watched as the two scientists walked back to where Terhoon labored over a drawing. It must be pretty tough if Dad is buffaloed, Rick said. Scotty nodded. You know, I get the feeling that we're parked on an unexploded atom bomb. I just keep waiting for it to go off. Same here. I keep waiting for Weiss or Zircon to walk in the door. I keep waiting for news that someone else has vanished into thin air. And mostly I keep waiting to hear that the gang has cracked some other government building and walked off with more of our secrets. I wonder why they haven't, Scotty mused. Maybe there's nothing more they want at the moment. At the moment, Scotty repeated. Maybe you have something there. We know they must have inside information. Suppose they're just killing time until something big is completed. Steve Ames has thought of that, Fanning said from behind them. Rick turned. Where did you drop from? Fanning put down a package and began untying it. Out to get a few parts we needed. Anyway, I heard Ames tell Dr. Kepner they have an extra guard on all the special assignment stuff that's being developed right now. They think of everything, Rick said. I don't know why we bother speculating at all. Except we'd go balmy if we didn't try to figure it out, Scotty told him. Well, what do we work on now? Check the ultrasonic gadget, Fanning said. What, and knock ourselves silly? Rick objected. We'll set the frequency above the whispering box, Fanning said. That'll give us different results. Wait a minute. I'll get the reports on ultrasonic experiments from the government clearinghouse. The ultrasonic part of the counterweapon was mounted on the aluminum chassis Rick and Scotty had made. It looked like an ordinary radio set without its cabinet, except for the conical metal projection from which the ultrasonic sounds came. This was Dr. Kempner's silent loudspeaker. Fanning returned from a desk at the front of the lab carrying a sheaf of papers. Doc Kempner says to go ahead and try it out. He consulted a sheet covered with mathematical symbols. 
Want to see this thing set fire to a sheet of paper? I have to see it before I believe it, Scotty said. Okay, Downing Thomas, watch this. Rick watched closely as Fanning set a control dial to the frequency indicated on the report, then found a sheet of paper and held it before the conical projector. Turn on the juice, the assistant directed. Rick threw the switch a little fearfully. He still wasn't certain that the machine wouldn't act like the whispering box. Instead, his skin tingled as though from a faint electric shock. The paper turned brown, charred, and then burst into flame. Fanning blew it out and grinned triumphantly at Scotty. See? Try holding your hand in front of the speaker. Not me, Scotty objected. I need my hand. I only have two. Fanning put his own hand directly in front of the conical metal. Rick stared. A moment before, paper held there had burst into flames. Go ahead, try it, Fanning invited. Rick did. The tingling sensation in his hand increased a hundredfold. It wasn't unpleasant, just strange. Well, I'm a chip's cousin, he exclaimed. There's something in here about that experiment in washing clothes, Fanning said. He leafed through the papers. There it is, he grinned at Scotty. Want to see if we can wash those gravy stains out of that necktie of yours? Those are part of the design, Scotty said with dignity. Wash your own necktie. Want everyone to know you had ketchup on your sandwich this noon? That's not ketchup. That's the blood of the last guy who insulted me, Fanning retorted. Hey, there isn't any frequency given. Try it anyway, Scotty said. What have you got to lose? Are you afraid it'll ruin that burlap bag you wear around your neck? Listen to the way he talks about fine linen. All right, stand by. I'll shoot the frequency up 2,000 cycles. That'll give us plenty of vibration. Rick objected quickly. Wait a minute. How do we know what will happen? Don't worry, Fanning soothed. It's 40,000 cycles higher than the whispering box. It won't hurt you. Rick watched nervously as the assistant moved the frequency control higher. He didn't like experimenting with any idea of the possible results. Fanning turned on the power. Scotty had been standing directly in front of the projector. He let out a yelp and jumped into the air. Rick stared as his friend started to do a jig, and then he burst into laughter. Fanning was laughing, too. So hard, he couldn't manage to shut the switch again. Scotty, face contorted in a look of utter amazement, was doing a wild, jittering dance. Rick stopped laughing abruptly. It was funny, but it might be serious. He stepped forward to grab Scotty, and then the thing hit him, too. For a moment, he felt as though needles were pricking him. Then, unable to control his movements, he began jumping around, holding tightly to Scotty's shoulder. Their inability to control their movements finally saved them. Scotty's long legs tangled with Rick's. For a moment, they tottered and then collapsed to the floor, out of range of the speaker. Fanning controlled his mirth long enough to throw the switch. Rick and Scotty sat up dazed. The scientists had arrived on the run from across the lab. Are you all right? Carson Brandt demanded anxiously. I don't know, Rick said ruefully. He tried his arms and legs and found he could control them once again. Then he got to his feet. Scotty got up too, grinning from ear to ear. I'll buy it, Scotty said. With that thing, Rick and I can become dancing champions overnight. What hit us? Dr. Kepner shook his head. There's a lot we don't know about ultrasonic sound, 
Fanny, I told you to stick strictly to established experiments. You might have killed yourself with these boys. Fanning was still trying to smother a grin, but the grin broke through. Oh, I never saw anything so funny. Laugh. Go ahead, laugh, Scotty said ruefully. Laugh your head off. Thanks, I will. Fanning went off into another gale of mirth. Even the scientists chuckled down. It was amusing, Hartson Brandt agreed. I thought Rick had suddenly gone berserk, or that he and Scotty were having some sort of strange fight. As long as no harm was done, we'll forget it, Dr. Kempner agreed. But stay strictly within bounds from now on, Fanning. You should know that ultrasonics are not to be played with. Oh, I'm sorry, sir, Fanning said. To Rick and Scotty, he said seriously. Dr. Kempner's right. It was a dumb stunt for me to pull. Rick saw the twinkle in Fanny's eyes. Eh, forget it. Forget it for the time being, Scotty added. Then watch out for Ross making my soup, huh? Okay, Scotty. By the way, speaking of soup, you guys had your lunch yet? Rick looked at his watch. It was almost five in the afternoon. Gosh, we completely forgot, he said. That won't do, Hartson Brandt told them. No matter how busy we are, you must eat on schedule. Otherwise, you'll serve no other purpose than dragging down your resistance. Skip out now, both of you. There's nothing for you right now anyway. Rick and Scotty cleaned up their workbench and went down the stairs to where Gizmo's taxi was parked. He was their constant shadow now when they were outside the lab. Where to? he demanded. Chow, I wondered if you'd forget to eat. I'll take you to a good place. The cab whisked them through the streets to a restaurant on New York Avenue near the corner of 10th Street. On the way into the restaurant, Rick purchased a copy of the Washington Star. Gizmo parked the cab and followed them into the restaurant. The trio sat down at a table, and Rick and Scotty ordered. Gizmo accepted a sandwich. Not that he was hungry, but to keep them company, he said. Rick studied the newspaper. He'd been out of touch with the news, and he was curious about what was happening outside the tight little sphere of lab activity. There was only the usual news of government activities, diplomatic difficulties, and so on. Then, on an inner page, he found a column written by a leading Washington newsman. He stiffened as a short paragraph caught his eye. Scotty, listen to this. He read it aloud. Unless a certain government protection agency has more luck in the next few days than it's had in the past, one of the biggest stories of recent months will break soon. Newsmen in the know can't keep it under their hats much longer. Big names are involved, including those of a trio of missing science savants. Scotty gave a low whistle. If the newspapers have it, the top is going to blow right off. Didn't I say we were sitting on an atom bomb? Gizmo instinctively looked under his chair. For a moment, he was shocked into silence, and then he asked, shakily, You're kidding, right? Sorry, it was just a figure of speech, Rick said quickly. Scotty hurriedly changed the subject. Listen, Giz, I just thought of something. You know where there's a store that sells jokes? I want to get something. Gizmo's forehead furrowed. Jokes? What kind of jokes? Like in books? No, practical jokes, you know? Exploding matches, itching powder, stuff like that. 
What do you want a store like that for? Rick asked suspiciously. I want to find something to amuse our friend Fanning, Scotty said. Rick grinned. Scotty hadn't forgiven the lab assistant's laughter. There's one down on Pennsylvania Avenue, Gizmo said. Let's go. It'll only take a minute. They paid the check and went out to where the cab was parked. As they approached, Rick saw a figure seated in the back. He stopped short. Giz, there's somebody in your cab. Some guy wanting a taxi, Gizmo said. I'll tell him it's already hired. He walked to the cab, Rick and Scotty beside him. Then, as Gizmo opened the door, Rick gasped. Sitting calmly in the rear seat was the driver, the man with the flattened nose who had chased them on foot with a whispering box. Rick's first instinct was to run. He turned, and Scotty beside him. The stranger's voice stopped them. Wait a minute. Look, I have not got the box. Turn around, both of you. Rick half-turned, still poised to run. He saw the man with both hands in the air. His hands were empty. Peace, conference, the man said, smiling. Don't trust this joker, Rick warned. Again, Scotty turned to run. I'm going to go call the cops. Wait, don't if you value your friends' lives. That stopped Scotty. Rick stood as though frozen. Weiss and Zircon, are they okay? They're just fine. Get into the cab. Rick's eyes met Scotty's. If he has any information about Weiss and Zircon, we want to know it, Scotty said. I hope you guys know what you're doing, Gizmo said. If it was me, I'd call for help. Rick stood undecided. He couldn't believe that one of the gang had placed himself in their hands without the whispering box. Yet the man's hands were empty, and there was no place he could have concealed the box and still have been able to reach it before they could jump him. Can't make up your mind? Again, the man smiled confidently. I will make it up for you. I'm unarmed, yes, but I have a weapon that will persuade you. Unless I return to my headquarters tonight, and unless you two are with me, Weiss and Zircon will be shot. Chapter 13 In the Hands of the Enemy There was nothing Rick or Scotty could do. Behind the man's smile, they sensed his deadly seriousness. They knew how ruthless the gang was, and they had every reason to believe his words were not a bluff. Unless they went along with him, Weiss and Zircon would almost certainly suffer for it. You win, Rick said dully. He got into the cab and sat down beside the man. Scotty followed suit. Okay, you got us over a barrel. What do you want us to do? Just make yourselves comfortable their enemy directed. McLean, get in, drive us. I will tell you where to go. Gizmo looked at Scotty and Rick hesitantly. There's nothing we can do. Better do as he says, Giz, Rick told him. Gizmo shrugged and got into the driver's seat. It was obvious he didn't like giving in so easily. I could drive right up to a cop, he offered. We could land this character in the city brig so fast he wouldn't know what hit him. Neither would your scientist friends, the man said gently. Don't try anything foolish. Rick studied the gang member's face. He was young, but a definite puffiness around his cheeks and eyes told of soft living. No wonder they had been able to outrun him that night by the Lincoln Memorial. Once, though, he had been an athlete, and probably a fighter or a wrestler. 
His nose had stopped many a punch. Are Weiss and Zircon all right? Rick demanded. And what about Dr. Bertona? Scotty added. They're okay. A little unhappy, but healthy. Unless you three try something foolish, of course. Rick was on the right side of the rear seat, and Scotty on the left. Their captor, if he could be called such, was seated between them, very much at ease. Gizmo looked back over his shoulder. Where to? Drive over to 14th Street. Go downtown. The taxi moved away from the curb and into traffic. By the stiff set of his neck, it was obvious that Gizmo was unhappy about this situation. Rick guessed that he might try something. That could not be permitted if Weiss and Zircon were to escape the gang's vengeance. Don't try anything, Gizmo, he said sharply. Now take it easy. If we get into a wreck, we won't get to where we're going in time. Very smart, their captor approved. Just relax, guys. We'll have a comfortable ride. It took a gag like this to get us, Scotty said bitterly. You tried twice before and missed. Tough luck, the stranger admitted. We were careless the first time. The second, you were lucky. We weren't equipped to fight a battalion of marines. Because the whispering box only carries a couple of charges, right? Rick asked quickly. You'd like to know that, wouldn't you? There's a lot we'd like to know, Scotty replied. Where are you taking us? To your friends. Why? Rick demanded. We can't do you any good. We're just a couple of junior assistants. What do you want us for? Flatnose chuckled. We need you. Do you think we'd go to so much trouble if we didn't need you? Keep on going down 14th Street, McLean. Gizmo obeyed orders. The taxi proceeded downtown through the 14th Street traffic. They crossed Pennsylvania and continued on past the Washington Monument and the Department of Agriculture. In a short time, they were crossing the Potomac into Virginia. Swing right, Flatnose commanded. Go upriver. He glanced at his watch. Go as far as Key Bridge, then turn around and come down the river again. Cross the Memorial Bridge back into the city. Gizmo growled. What is this, a joyride? Just killing time. Do as you're told. You'll be fine. You better do it, Scotty said. He turned to their captor. You got a name? We might as well get acquainted. I guess you know who we are. You bet I do. I've been camped on your trail ever since we almost got you near the hotel. If you want something to call me, make it Nails. That's my nickname. Nails? Rick repeated. That's a funny name. What's funny about it? How about your own name? Where I come from, a Rick is something that they put hay in. Gizmo was driving up the parkway on the Virginia side of the river. As they moved along at a moderate speed, a police cruiser drifted past. The officer on the passenger's side looked over at them. Nails affably vanished. Don't try anything, he snapped. Just sit tight. Look pleasant. Rick and Scotty did. There was nothing else they could do. The cruiser pulled ahead of them and continued on its way. Let's store the charter. You'll have plenty of time to talk later when you compare notes with your pals. Are you going to keep riding around until dark? Scotty asked, ignoring the order. 
That's what it looks like to me. Bright boy, Nail said. Rick calculated. His watch told him it was almost six. It wouldn't be fully dark until about half past eight. That's more than two hours from the time you picked us up. Suppose we're not there in time. Nails grinned. You'll have to excuse me, boys. I sort of exaggerated a little, he added quickly. But don't get any ideas. I wasn't kidding. We have to get to where we're going by a definite time, and you have to be with me. Otherwise, Weiss and Zircon get in the neck. Why can't we go directly there? Rick demanded. It won't do us any good to know where your headquarters is. You wouldn't be stupid enough to let us get away so we could use the information. Nails motioned with his thumb toward the back window. Didn't know you boys were being tailed, did you? There was a guy in a blue coupe following you when I picked you up. We have to wait until dark to get rid of him. For an instant, hope flared and then died as quickly. The only way anyone could be trailed successfully was to keep them from knowing they were being followed. Nails knew about their shadow, which was more than Rick or Scotty had known. Steve must have put a tail on them for their own protection. Rick slumped down in his seat. In a little while, they would have the answer to the riddle of the missing scientists. They might have the answers to a lot of riddles, but it wouldn't do them the slightest bit of good. Chapter 14 Dead End The man in the blue coupe drove with one hand while he held a microphone to his lips with the other. Three cars ahead, he could see the taillight of Gizmo McLean's cab. It's getting darker. If they're going to try anything, it'll be pretty soon. He spoke in clear, understandable English instead of using the cryptic code numbers used by most police transmitters. Built into his radio was a word scrambler that reduced his message to unintelligible sounds. At the receiving end, a similar device unscrambled the frequencies so that the listener heard the message just as it was transmitted. The device prevented eavesdropping by anyone equipped with a shortwave set. Only radios manned by Steve Ames' men were equipped with that particular type of scrambler. Steve's voice came through the loudspeaker in the blue coupe. What's your present location? We're on Connecticut Avenue, proceeding toward Chevy Chase Circle. The next corner will be Chesapeake Road. Are you sure they know you're on their tail? They haven't pulled anything queer, but I think they know. The man in the blue coupe was sure that no other reason would have kept the taxi driving around in circles until darkness started to fall. Not until the streetlights came on did the taxi head out Connecticut Avenue, as though finally starting for a destination. Steve Ames' voice came through the speaker again. Keep your eyes open, Dave. They're apt to try something at any time. I'm at the corner of Connecticut Avenue and Military Road. If you get this far, I'll swing in behind you. Watch for Bill and the Tan Mercury. He's coming up Connecticut trying to overtake you. Once he passes, let them lose you if they try. Bill and I will take over. Dave picked up his microphone and acknowledged. Okay, Steve. I think we've got him boxed. It was fully dark now, but the lights on Connecticut Avenue enabled Dave to see the taxi. He kept a few cars between them just as a matter of principle, although he was sure there was no longer need for secrecy. He was just as sure that some sudden maneuver would be made to lose him. He grinned. If the driver would only hold off until Bill passed or until they reached Military Road so Steve could take over, it wouldn't matter. He would even play dumb so that they could lose him with no trouble. 
The taxi went ahead at a moderate speed, stopping for all the lights. Dave trailed along, keeping his distance, but prepared to move faster if necessary. They reached a long stretch between two streetlights. The taxi picked up a little speed. Dave looked ahead and saw the next light was green. He picked up speed a bit, too, but let the taxi pull away from him slightly. He knew they wouldn't make the green light. Sure enough, while the taxi was still 200 feet from the light, it changed to amber and then red. But the taxi kept on going, right through the light. It swerved to avoid a bus, straightened out, and shot ahead. Dave pushed the gas pedal to the floor and went after them. The intervening cars blocked his way. He started to swing past when he saw the taxi suddenly cross the avenue and shoot down a side street. He relaxed and grinned, content now to wait for the light. He'd been brought up in this part of Washington and knew every street in it. What the taxi driver, whoever was directing him, evidently didn't know was that that street was a dead end, nor did it have any alleyways where the car might turn off. He had only to wait and the car would come out again. It had to come out. If it didn't, he would know that the people in the cab were in one of the houses on the street or had taken to walking. In either case, it was all right. In a matter of minutes, they could throw a net of men around the area. The light changed. Dave pulled ahead and swung to the curb opposite, the street down from which the taxi had turned. A car came out, but it was a convertible. Top down, a man and woman were in it. Dave waited patiently. A moving van came out, followed by a khaki army car. There was another long pause, and then a coupe came out. Dave began to wonder. They would have discovered by now that it was a dead end. He waited for a pause in the avenue of traffic and then swung his coupe around and went down the street. He drove slowly, inspecting the houses as he passed. There were only a few. He picked up his microphone. Steve, this is Dave. Go ahead. I'm on Colway. It's a private street, dead end. They came down here about five minutes ago and they haven't come out. Right. Bill, did you get that? A new voice came on the air. It belonged to the operator in the tan mercury. I've got it, Steve. I'll be there in a few minutes. I'm on the avenue heading that way. I just passed Chesapeake. Okay, Bill. Step on it. Dave, keep looking. I'm coming down the avenue to meet you. Keep in touch. Right. The houses were set some distance apart. Cars were parked on the street, but none of them were cabs. Dave could see the woods where the street ended, and he began to worry. He should have seen the cab by now. He stepped on the gas. At the end of the street, he stopped, suddenly frightened. Had he lost them? There was no way out. They must be in some garage. But he knew they weren't. They had known they were being trailed. They wouldn't try to hide in a garage where they could be easily located. He was sure the four people in the taxi had not been in any of the cars that had come out of the street. And even if they had been hiding in a baggage compartment or crouching in a rear seat, where was the cab? He reached for the mic again. Steve, this is Dave. They're gone. Gone, the reply came swiftly. They can't be gone. Where do they turn off? They didn't, Dave said. There isn't any place for them to turn off, but they're gone. Think, man. Steve sounded urgent. If they're gone, where do they go? Taxis don't vanish. This one did, Dave said miserably. He had turned around and was driving back toward Connecticut Avenue, surveying every house he passed. He was certain they wouldn't have driven into a garage, trapping themselves. He was equally certain they couldn't have turned off anywhere. Then where had they gone? And then it hit him. 
the moving van. He still had the mic in his hands, and Steve had heard him. What moving van? It came out of the street, he said quickly. They must be in it, Steve. I'm going after them. Bill, are you listening? Go ahead. What does the van look like? A yellow one. No name on it. Watch for it, Bill. I'm on my way. Get going. Keep in touch. I'm coming down to cover that street. Dave punched a button on his dashboard. His headlights turned red and the siren under the hood began to wail. He pushed the pedal to the floor and hunched over the wheel. The van had gone down Connecticut Avenue toward the city. He spun around the corner of the avenue. Cars scattered before the wailing siren. Traffic lights flickered past. Police officers came from nowhere to hold up traffic for this mad rush down the avenue. Bill, he said into his mic, use your red lights so I'll know when we meet. I'm using them. We must be close. Down the avenue he saw the red gleam of headlights and slowed his speed. He swung to the middle of the road and saw Bill do the same. The cars met and edged together. Bill, a stocky man, leaned across the intervening space. No moving van past me, Dave. Dave picked up his mic. Steve, Bill and I met on the avenue. Neither of us saw that van. Steve's voice shook with anger. Get going, both of you. Quarter the streets. Find them, or I'll take the hide off you myself. Okay, Dave said. He moved off, sirens screaming. Bill headed down the nearest side street. Dave felt sick. Those two boys had been his responsibility. Steve had set him to guard them. Now their captor had neatly tricked him by driving the cab into the back of a moving van. He could see the setup perfectly. The brains behind this thing had figured out all the angles. If the taxi hadn't been able to meet the van on the dead-end street, the big truck would have gone to another rendezvous. They would have kept it up until the trick had succeeded. Dave searched the nearby streets as fast as the siren and reckless driving would let him. But deep down, he knew it was no use. He wouldn't find that van again. Or if he did, it would be empty and abandoned. The Whispering Box Gang had succeeded again. <laughs>